Well, good morning. Let us stand together, begin our time hearing from God's word. Philippians 2, Paul writes a word that is applicable for us today, even as we gather in corporate worship. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We want to confess that together today. And remember that Jesus was exalted by humility. He was glorified by being crucified. And he is magnified when we, the church, follow in his pattern of humility and service to one another. So let us humble ourselves. Let us serve one another as we lift high the name above all names.
Amen. That's what we're gathered together to do this morning, to lift high the name of Jesus. To lift it high so that people looking in on us would, would hear about how great our God is and they would turn and believe. But also to lift high the name of Jesus in our own hearts. Because I know each of us this week, we've struggled, we've been tempted to lift high other things, haven't we? To lift high other names, even our own. In this time when we gather together as a church, it's a reset, it's a reminder every week of, of who it really is that deserves our worship, who it really is that deserves our fear, and who deserves to be lifted high, and that's Jesus, amen? Amen. Be seated. Well, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the Minister of Theological Training here at the church, and if you're visiting, uh, we're really, really glad that you're here. I know that we've had a lot of visitors over the last few months with things kind of opening up again. Um, we would love to get to know you, so we're going to have people up here uh, after the service that would be happy to meet you and introduce ourselves and um, hear your story here, where you're coming from. You can also email us, info at dscabq. Com, but we want to know you're here. We want to we want to know how we can help, and we also want you to get to know us. We want you to know what our church is like, is about, what we believe, and um, that's why we want to remind you that we've got a membership class coming up in May, May 14th and 15th. Our membership class, it's a Friday evening and a Saturday morning, and it's a place where you can come and you can learn what it is that we believe as a church, what uh, makes us different from other churches in the area. What does it mean to belong to our church? What does it mean to be a member of a church? And what would it look like for you to join us at Desert Springs Church? Jesus doesn't call us to just attend church. Jesus has called us to belong to the church. And we think that that happens through membership. And so I would put that out to you. If you've been visiting, if you've been with us for a while, maybe you would consider uh, attending our membership class. Going to the class doesn't obligate you to anything, okay? It's just kind of a first step where you can learn, maybe get some questions answered. You'll even get to meet our elders and uh, learn about them a little bit more. But as I said, it doesn't obligate you to anything, but if you do want to join our church as a member, this is the first step in that process. So that can start that process for you. And look, we we don't uh, we don't care what church it is that you belong to, okay? We just want you to belong somewhere. There are lots of other good churches in this area that preach the same gospel that we believe. And so we just want you to belong to any of these churches that preach the same gospel. And we'd be happy to connect you with those churches. But maybe coming to this class would be a good way for you to even learn what it means, what you should be looking for in a good church, okay? So if you want to come to this membership class, as I said, it's May 14th and 15th. Put that down on your calendar, and then you do need to register. So you can register on our website. You can download the app. You can email us again. You could even call the office, and we'll have somebody register for you if you want to do that, okay? But I would put that out there for you, the membership class. In that class, you'll learn that Desert Springs Church exists to spread God's glory broader and deeper. And God does that in a number of ways, but one of the most important ways is what we're doing right now. So let's pray that God would use this time for that mission. Lord, we do want to lift high your name. We want you to be glorified. We want your glory to take root more deeply in our own hearts and then to spread out from this place. Spread out into our homes and into our workplaces and into our schools to the ends of the earth, Lord. We know that we haven't done this perfectly. We've got other things exalted in our hearts. So Lord, would you even right now just use this time to show us your glory. 
Use the words that we sing, what we pray, what we hear preached, all of this, Lord, use it to show us your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, as Chase said, so often we don't humble ourselves, but we exalt ourselves. And we don't lift high the name of Jesus, but we lift high our own name or the name of others or even other things that don't deserve our worship. So let us confess that now. Let's stand. Confess that sin and others together. Would you say this with me? If at times, through our words, thoughts, and deeds, we deny you, God, forgive. When the risks of discipleship are high and we are nowhere to be found, God, forgive. When fear or prejudice keeps us from witnessing to your truth or hard hearts keep us from believing it, God, forgive. In the bright light of the gospel, O oh God, our sin is exposed and your grace is revealed. Tender God, raise us in your love so that with joy we may witness to your awesome deeds. In the name of Jesus, the risen one, amen. Amen. Now remember, Christians, when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive and to pour out the riches of his grace on us again and again and again. Your grace that leads the sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. Your grace that reaches far and wide to every tribe and nation has called my heart to enter in the
us. It is his grace that saves us, and his grace unites us to himself and to each other. So let us sing as an expression of our unity. Let's sing with one voice. Please pray with me. 
is God, we do believe that, that you dwell in the presence of your people. And as we're gathered here together now, we believe that you are here among us in a very special way. And this is a staggering thought. That we've come near to a God who is a consuming fire. And we are unholy people. And yet we're not consumed. We get to stand in your presence because of Jesus. We thank you for Jesus who was consumed on our behalf and who has made a way for us to approach your throne. We stand before you and we get to worship you, we get to marvel at you. Not just that, we get to ask you things and you hear us and you answer. So God, because we can ask this morning, we lift up to you schools in our community. God, as always, we pray for Los Ranchos Elementary. We thank you for the partnership that you've uh, grown there between our church and this school and our community. And Lord, we pray that you would use the members that we have that, that serve that school to share the love of Christ with the students that are there and their families and with the teachers and the administrators. And we pray that we would be merciful to them and compassionate and that we would love them with your love and that you would use that to lead people to repentance. But Lord, even more, we just pray for all the schools in our city and in our community as they're transitioning back to in-person learning, even in the coming weeks. God, we thank you that these students will, will get to be back in school. We thank you that they'll get to be learning from their teachers and getting to be around their peers. We thank you that even many of these students will once again have access to someone that supports them and loves them and gives them the safety that they just don't get at home. God, we thank you for this purpose that schools serve of doing good. And God, we thank you for teachers. We thank you for teachers and, and school staff and administrators at, at these schools. Lord, we thank you for the ministry that you, you have given to them to, to treat, teach and train up our younger neighbors, our fellow citizens. And we thank you especially for Christian educators, both in private and in public schools. We thank you for our brothers and sisters who take the love of Christ with them to some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Jesus, we know that you love children. And you said you want children to come to you and not to be prevented. And so I pray that you would use our brothers and sisters that work with children to do that. Give them opportunities to introduce them to you. And yet, God, we know that this transition is going to be difficult. It's going to have a lot of challenges. And so we pray, first, just for the health and the protection of our teachers and our students as they do go back to school. And God, we pray for the mental health of these students. We know that the last year has, has been difficult for them. And we pray that our teachers would would love them and use discernment for how best to, to meet the needs of these students, which goes so much farther than math and geography. But they would treat them as, as people made in your image that need to be cared for. And God, if any students are hurting or have been hurt over the last year, God, would you please give them the help that they need? And God, we pray for these teachers as always that when they do this work, they would do it with endurance. You would give them stamina and what is a difficult calling. And God, even now with these constraints that will be on them with these COVID 
times, Lord, and the timing of this return to school and the disruption that has uh, been this last year so far, Lord, just encourage our teachers. Help believing teachers to turn to you and to trust in your sovereignty. And just give them wisdom, Lord. Give them wisdom to know what is really the best thing to do in this time with the time that they have left this school year. Give them wisdom to prioritize. Give them wisdom. And Lord, we pray that you would help them to not grow tired of doing good. And for the next few weeks and months, just, just give them strength, we ask in your name. And God, help us all to have strength. Help us all to turn to you as our strength. God, you're our rock. You're our ever-present help in time of need. By your grace this morning, Lord, would you just help us all to remember that? Would you help us all to remember that you are where we need to turn when we're afraid? And we ask especially now that you would use our brother Caleb and your holy word from the book of Galatians to stir us up to love, to love you with all of our heart and all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. For your glory alone, we ask. Amen. Let us stand now and continue to rejoice in the grace that was poured out on sinners like us. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount Lord, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled.
Father, if your grace is not greater than our sin, we should be terrified right now. Father, we should be terrified because our sin deserves your wrath in hell. If our sin is greater than your grace, we are of all men most to be pitied. But Father, if your grace is greater than our sin, we have nothing to be terrified about this morning. We have every reason to come boldly to the throne of grace. We have every reason to come to your word, to hear from you and come with confidence. We can come with confidence knowing you are eager to respond to our prayers. And so Father, we pray. We pray that you would use your word, maybe in ways that we aren't even expecting right now, for you to pull up sin out of our lives that we would repent of, that maybe we've seen for the very first time. Father, for you to give grace and life, maybe for the first time, to dead hearts. Father, your word can do this. It's done this many, many times. You can do it again today. So we look to you. We look to you with confidence that you will do that work among us here this morning. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. You guys can be seated. If you don't know me, my name is Caleb Batchelor, and I'm the youth and families minister here at the church. And this morning we are going to be in Galatians 2. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can open it up to Galatians 2, starting in verse 11. But when Cephas, or who we know as Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Well, things have escalated from last week, haven't they? I mean, Galatians 2, 1 through 10 was not an easy text. It was not Psalm 23 or John 3, 16. Things were tense. Paul was calling out guys, calling them false brothers, and he wasn't budging for a minute on the gospel. But there was unity among the leaders, wasn't there? Paul and Peter were planning TGC conferences together. James and John were dreaming up podcasts. 
And when we get up from the table in verse 10, they're all strategizing about how to care for the poor. Heavy stuff, but good conversation. We're not up from the table for maybe 30 seconds or so. We come back and what do we see? Verse 11. Paul is rebuking Peter to his face. What happened? What happened from Galatians 2.10 to Galatians 2.11? Well, Paul's gonna fill in the gaps for us uh, in verses 12 through 14. But for us to understand why the circumcision party was so offended that Peter was eating with the Gentiles, we need a, a quick tutorial on Old Covenant dietary laws. So here it is. Under the Old Covenant, the Israelites were under this strict diet. Okay, so they had this strict diet and they had to be able to separate between foods that were clean and foods that were unclean. So you had things like pork, certain kinds of seafood, certain kinds of birds. These things were off limits. Here's the really important thing to get. This diet, these dietary laws, like circumcision, separated the Israelites from the rest of the world. It was their way of being able to mark themselves off as God's people. This dietary law that they had to follow was entrenched within Israelite culture. It was so entrenched that even after Christ comes, even after Christ comes and fulfills all the old covenant laws and he establishes a new covenant law, Peter is still unconvinced that he can be able to eat these foods that were once considered unclean. He's still having a hard time believing that he can be able to eat pork. Even an angel from heaven has a hard time convincing Peter. Acts 10, an angel comes to him and Peter has this vision and he sees that he can be able to eat all of these foods that he once thought were unclean. The angel tells him, Peter, it's all right, buddy. You can eat pork now. Peter still doesn't believe him. He thinks he's being tricked. <laughs> Peter's gonna need to be able to see something even more and he has to wait until the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles before he realizes he can eat these foods that were once considered unclean. But here's the thing I love about Peter. Once he's in, he is all in, isn't he? Once Peter's in, he is all in. One chapter after this vision, Acts 11, Peter's all in. He's gathering the Gentiles over to his backyard for barbecues. He's, uh, he's buying hot dogs and wrapping bacon around them. He's going to Blake's, picking up green chili cheeseburgers. Peter is all in. And even when the Jewish believers come to Peter and they have some questions, they want, Peter, why are you eating with the Gentiles? When they come to him, even when they have their eyebrows raised, Peter goes toe to toe with him, doesn't he? Acts 11, he confronts them to their face. He stands up for his Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. In Acts 11, Peter is bold. So what changed? What changed from Acts 11 to our passage this morning? What made Peter get up from his spot next to all of his Gentile friends in the cafeteria and move to the other side? What happened? 
fear. Verse 12, Peter feared the circumcision party and it divided the church. If you're taking notes this morning, I think that's the main idea of our text this morning. Fear divides, but the gospel unites. Fear divides, but the gospel unites. And we're just gonna take this main idea and break it up into its two phrases. Fear divides, verses 11 through 13. And our second point will be the gospel unites. Well, what made Peter afraid? We're not really sure. We don't exactly know why Peter feared the circumcision party. We don't have necessarily anything in Acts or in Galatians that would give us a reason why he was afraid. But it looks like there's something in James and his crew, when they came and they relayed something to Peter, there was something in their message to Peter that made Peter afraid. We don't know a whole lot about this circumcision party that he was afraid of. We don't know whether these were believing Jews and maybe Peter was afraid of losing some friendships. We don't know whether the circumcision party were unbelieving Jews and Peter was afraid of persecution. Persecution maybe directed at him or some of his other Jewish believing friends. We don't know. But we do know that he was afraid. We know that that drove him to add dietary laws as prereqs for gospel fellowship. We know that Peter was afraid of losing something connected with his ethnic tribe. And that drove him to implicitly tell the Gentiles that Christ was not enough. They needed something else besides Christ for them to have gospel fellowship. They needed to follow these dietary laws. We know that Peter's fear divided Christ's church. We know that our fear can do the same thing. Our fear can divide this church. Or maybe you don't know that. Maybe you're like me and you haven't thought about how fear can divide the church. To be honest with you, until I've studied this text this past week, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about how my fear can divide the church. But as I've been looking at our passage for this morning, seeing a lot of myself in Peter, seeing a lot of Peter in me, the Holy Spirit has been doing some tough work this past week in my heart. He's been just pulling off layers and layers and layers of false confidence that I like to show to all of you guys. False confidence that's on the outside, but he's been showing me how much fear I have on the inside. Now, I have never had nightmares about the circumcision party. I don't know anyone in this church who's afraid about a circumcision agenda that's out there. In our community group, I have never heard someone ask for prayer that the Lord would deliver them from the circumcision party. We get afraid, don't we? We have different fears. When they pop up, these fears can divide our church. They can divide brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's a question for you to throw in your back pocket. What are you afraid of losing? 
What are you afraid of losing? You know, if I was Satan and I wanted to divide this church, I don't think I would start with theological differences. I don't think I would send a jerk into this church and cause something, some sort of rile people up. I don't think I would do that. I think it would be too obvious. We'd be able to detect it. Now, if I was Satan, I wanted to divide this church, I would start with fear. It's more subtle, but it's just as deadly. It's just as deadly, if not more so. What are you afraid of losing? Some of us are afraid of losing friendships. We've been wanting friends for a long time and maybe just a couple months ago, we finally found one. Finally found a friend to go on vacation with. But this friend is walking out of step with the gospel. She's slandering a brother or sister in Christ in our church. And you know you should confront her. You know that you should bring this up to her attention that she needs to stop doing this, but you're afraid. You finally found a friend. You don't want to lose this friend. So reluctantly, you join in the slander. You grin and bear it. You join in the slander. And as we do that, our fear divides our church. Some of us are afraid of losing tribal identities. It's not that we overtly hate people who have a different social or political or cultural background than us. It's just that we're afraid that that comes up in conversation, it's gonna get awkward. As we do that, our fear divides our church. Some of us are afraid of losing comfort. We're just afraid of being uncomfortable and that's all that it really is. It's as simple as that. We just don't want to be, to feel awkward. So when we come here on Sunday morning, what do we do? We look for our crew. We go to the people that we know. It's not that we hate new people. It's not that we hate the people that we don't know. We're just afraid It's gonna be awkward. It's not that we exclude folks from the Lord's table based on their skin color. It's just that we exclude them from our tables. We're afraid of losing our comfort, so we draw back. And as we do that, our fear divides our church. Fear is sneaky, it's subtle. Fear is like carbon monoxide. We can't detect it with our senses. We don't recognize it until the damage has already been done and the church has been splintered into a thousand pieces. Can't detect it with our senses. We need someone else to detect it for us. We need the Holy Spirit. Here's some really good news for you this morning. We have not been given a spirit of fear. We have not been given a spirit of fear. What does Paul tell the Romans? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, 
Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We don't have to be afraid of losing friendships. We have a heavenly Father who will always be our friend. We don't have to be afraid of losing our tribal identities. The lion from the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, is our identity. We don't have to be afraid of losing comfort. We have the spirit of adoption as our comforter. We don't have to be afraid of anything because Christ has given us everything. We are heirs with him. We are heirs with Christ. We are united to Christ. And if we are united to Christ, we are free. We are free in Christ. Sometimes we forget that though, don't we? Sometimes we forget and we fall back into fear. What has Jesus done? When our knees are shaking, we've fallen back into fear and it's dividing the church. What has he done? He's come and found us. He's come and he's found us in our fear. He's lovingly and faithfully confronted us, just like he did with Peter. If you're not familiar with Peter's story, this is not the first time that he's been afraid. No, he's, he's struggled with this sin before. Right after Jesus was arrested, he got scared. And he denied Christ. Christ confronted him. It's a heartbreaking story. It's sad. But you know what I think would have been really sad? Peter gets scared. He denies Christ. Christ looks Peter in the eye, turns away, and never looks back. That would have been gut-wrenching. That would have been sad. It's not what happens, though, is it? No, Jesus walks away from Peter, but he walks away to go to the cross. He walks away to go to forgive Peter's sin. Now, he doesn't cancel Peter. Because Jesus is about to cancel Peter's sin on the cross, he doesn't cancel Peter after his denial. And brothers and sisters in Christ, he will not cancel you. Because of the cross, Jesus will not cancel you because of your sin. He will lovingly and faithfully confront you. And that's what Paul does with Peter. And step with the gospel, recognizing their shared union with Christ, Paul affirms that Christ has made him and Peter unified. Ephesians 2.14, Christ has made Paul and Peter one. But in another sense, they need to work out, they need to live out this gospel unity. Ephesians 4, 3, they need to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so when Peter's fear divides Christ's church, Paul steps in. He confronts our friend, Peter. That brings us to our second point. The gospel unites. Did you notice the order 
of what was going through Paul's mind before he confronted Peter. Fixed gospel unity in Christ leads to gospel confrontation in light of Christ, leading to ongoing gospel unity in Christ. Fixed gospel unity in Christ, confrontation in light of Christ, ongoing gospel unity in Christ. The world switches the order. It reverses the order. It confronts and then unites. It confronts, it will confront you and say, you need to join my side. And if you will join my side, then we can have unity. But you better join my side. You better agree with me and you better probably agree with me the first time or I'll cancel you. It's how the world thinks. It's what you deserve. I'll cancel you because you need to atone for your sins. Elizabeth Brunick, she's a journalist for the New York Times. I thought she made a super insightful comment last summer. Listen to what she says. There's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. Do you hear that? An environment that demands atonement, but disdains forgiveness. I think she's onto something. There's a lot of atonement talk out there right now. Very little forgiveness. I think she's on to something. Except for one thing. I don't think we disdain forgiveness. I think we want to forgive. But if we're going to forgive, we need to make sure that that sin has been paid for. I think we want to show mercy, but to be able to show mercy and to forgive, we need to make sure that justice has been satisfied. We want to show mercy, but we want justice. And left to ourselves, left to our own wisdom, we cannot reconcile the two. We cannot bring both of these desires together. With our philosophical strategies, they cannot hold the weight of both of these desires. They are too big. Only one thing can hold that weight. Only one, the cross. It's only at the cross that justice and mercy perfectly meet. It's only at the cross where Jesus can be able to say, I'm gonna give you all my mercy because I'm gonna take away all of your sin. I'm gonna atone for all of your sin. There is no cross there is no atonement, and we will disdain forgiveness. But at the cross, there is full atonement, and we can embrace forgiveness. Because of the cross, we are not left with cancel culture. We've got another alternative. We have a hope-filled, merciful alternative. Gospel confrontation. And our text this morning gives us a few principles to consider as we pursue that. Principle number one, 
Paul responds to public sin with public confrontation. Because this is a public sin, because Peter's sin is drawing Barnabas away from the faith, because it's causing unrest among the community of faith, Paul confronts Peter's sin in a public way. And as leaders, this is what we sign up for. If you're going to be a leader, you are signing up for the possibility of confrontation publicly. If, you, if your conduct moves outside of the gospel, if you're not in step with the gospel, you are leaving yourself open to public confrontation. Paul's going to later tell Timothy, he says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. What does that mean? If you see a DSC leader move outside of the gospel, their conduct is not in step with the gospel, and there are two or three witnesses or four or five or 10 or 20, whoever sees that better bring a charge to that leader. If you see me back away from fellowship with any brother or sister in Christ in this church, there are two, three, four, five, 10, 20, 500 witnesses. You better bring that charge to me. Public sins require public confrontation. But not private sins. Not private sins. Matthew 18, it's private sin. You go to that brother or sister alone. You don't bring in other brothers and sisters who weren't a part of that and you start talking to them about it. You go to that brother or sister in Christ alone. Amy Carmichael has a good word for us here. The absent should be safe in our presence. The absent should be safe in our presence. Did you hear that? I'm going to say it one more time. The absent should be safe in our presence. So if you're visiting here this morning and you like to gossip, let me be really clear. That is not welcome here. Gossip gossip is not welcome at Desert Springs Church. We will confront you. We're glad you're here. If you want to gossip, you can go do that somewhere else. You're not going to do it here at Desert Springs. The absent are safe in our presence. Principle number two, Paul reserves his strongest confrontations for salvation concerns. Paul didn't get worked up about everything. Verses 5 and 14, it was the, the truth of the gospel that he got passionate about. It's the truth of the gospel. And the closer to the gospel the problem is, the stronger the confrontation He didn't confront Peter after he switched denominations. He didn't confront Peter because of something that was outside of the gospel. He reserved his strongest confrontations for salvation concerns. I'm going to be honest with you guys here. I'm not great at this. 
I'm not. Leah tells me that I'm a one on the Enneagram. I don't know what that means, but I know that right and wrong are really important to me. I know that I can be reading a book. It could be a book about family discipleship, evangelism. It's a good book by a godly author. If I disagree with something in that book, you'd think this author was denying the virgin birth or the Trinity. I struggle with this. Y'all pray for me. I need this text just like you guys do. Galatians 2 isn't telling us to only confront people when the gospel is at stake, but we should reserve our strongest confrontations for salvation concerns. Principle number three, Paul rebukes clear sin, not unclear sin. Peter's sin is observable. He's been hanging out with the Gentiles at Red Lobster every week. And then he just stopped showing up. It's clear. We can see what's going on. Peter, what, Paul wasn't rebuking Peter because he saw some bumper stickers on Peter's camel. Did you hear that? Paul wasn't going to Peter's library and seeing a few books on his shelf from people that weren't Christians and making assumptions about Peter. Paul wasn't reading between the lines. If you're reading between the lines, that may or may not be okay. You may or may not be right. But hear this. If you're reading between the lines and you're dividing the body of Christ, that is not okay. It's not okay. We rebuke clear sin. You know, one thing I've noticed about myself on this, one thing I've noticed about myself is that when I'm actually spending time with people who really believe uh, it's a clear, false gospel, when I'm spending my time with those folks, I just don't have time to read between the lines. It's really practical. I just don't have time in my day to get on a blog for two hours and figure out why one pastor doesn't like another pastor's book. I've got a coffee set up with someone who doesn't believe the gospel at all. Y'all, we have one life. One life. One life and a great commission. And we live in a city where most people believe a false gospel. Most people in this city believe a false gospel. And most of these people have never even heard the true gospel. Most of your coworkers, most of your neighbors have never even heard the true gospel. We don't have time for Twitter threads. We don't have time to watch hours and hours of YouTube videos of people making assumptions about another brother and sister in Christ. We've got one life. Great commission. Let's rebuke clear sin. Fourth point, fourth principle. Paul recognizes the difference between false brothers and fearful brothers. Paul's not scared. He's not afraid to call out a fearful brother, or a false brother, I should say. 
He's not afraid to call out a false brother. He does that in verse four. But he doesn't confuse Peter's fear with a false profession. No, Paul has seen Peter. He's seen gospel fruit in his life, and he knows he's a genuine brother. He's just afraid. He knows that Barnabas is not a false brother. He's seen enough fruit in Barnabas' life to know this is just a time when Barnabas got a little bit scared. He's able to recognize the difference between false brothers and fearful brothers. Let's be careful here. Let's be careful here. Before you confront someone, ask yourself, is this a, is this a false brother or is this a fearful brother? That distinction should inform how you confront them in their sin. So before you go to Facebook, before you go to social media to confront someone, ask yourself, is this a fearful brother? Is this a brother or sister for whom Christ has died? Before you go to social media, remember Romans chapter eight, verse 33 through 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who indeed is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding. Christ is interceding. Because he lives, Christ intercedes for fearful brothers. I wonder... How would our confrontations with a brother or sister change if we could hear Christ interceding for them in the next room? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't look at their sin. Don't look at their unrighteousness. Look at my obedience. Look at the cross, look at my righteousness. How would our tone of voice change if we could hear Christ interceding for our brothers and sisters in Christ? How would our word choice change if we could hear Christ's intercession? Let Christ's intercession be the background noise of your confrontation. Let Christ's intercession inform how you're going to confront a fearful brother or sister in Christ. One more principle and we'll be done. Remember where we're headed. Remember where we're headed. Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is where we're headed. 
This is where we are headed. We are headed to the marriage supper of the Lamb. No more fear. No more division. No more confrontation. Many different backgrounds. One table. Gospel unity. Let's pray. Father, bring us to the cross. Bring us to the cross. And as we bring our fears and we bring our sins to the foot of the cross, Father, I ask that we would look around. I ask that we would look around and see our other brothers and sisters in Christ in our church there with us. And Father, as we're there together, as we've gathered around our redemption won by Christ, Father, I ask that you would grow our church in unity. Father, I ask that we would be more and more unified, that we would be able to live out, to be able to live out the unity that is already ours in Christ. We ask for all these things in your son's name. Amen. Yes, let us stand now to respond to the word, uniting our voices and sing out this statement of faith. church is one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord she is his new creation by water and the word from heaven he came and saw
you're here and you're not a believer, when we were talking about mercy and justice, if that was new to you, here's one thing I don't want you to do right now. If you haven't totally figured out what that means for you, you haven't totally connected those dots, I don't want you to leave. Don't leave this room because you haven't totally figured it out. We're gonna have people up here at the end of the service who would love to talk to you. I'll be up here, would love to answer any of your questions. If we talk up here and you still have more questions, we'll schedule coffees, we'll schedule lunches. We'll make sure you, we answer all of your questions as best as we can. DSC family, I've got one more word for you. Romans 15, five through six. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.